0: It is a privilege to be with you all this morning. As Ben just shared, my name's Hardy, uh, campus minister at UCF. Um, It is a um, privilege to do campus ministry, and it's uh, even more a privilege to come and be with churches like yourself who partner with our ministry. In effect, churches like you, think college students need a pastor in that formative season where they go to campus. And so through y'all's partnerships and partnerships of other churches in the area, um, y'all have sent me to the campus to proclaim the good news of Jesus. Um, And we have a fellowship on campus where we uh, meet in large groups. I do one-on-one discipleship uh, with many students and uh, lead Bible studies throughout the week. And we couldn't do that work uh, without y'all. So we are so grateful. Uh, This morning, I am uh, glad to preach uh, to you from Acts. We will be in Acts, um, I think I actually texted Ben um, one verse wrong. We're going to be in Acts 1, uh, verses 4 through 11. So if it's not on the screen, that's my mistake. Um, While you turn there, or if it's on the screen, um, I am, again, just so grateful for this opportunity. I don't take this uh, lightly to be um, with you all to... uh, Uh, be preaching God's Word. So let's uh, turn to him now uh, and hear from him, and afterwards we will say a prayer of illumination. So Acts chapter 1. This is God's Word. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who is taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, uh, you know every single heart in this place And perhaps even listening online. Uh, You know our dependence upon you, Holy Spirit, to understand your word. And so we ask that you would shine your perfect light on our hearts that we might see you this morning and that we might respond in faithfulness. For the people's hearts that are in this place that are coming in, maybe too disrupted by the power of your spirit and the preaching of the gospel, would you comfort them? And for those here that are coming in, maybe a little too comfortable. Uh, Would you disrupt them by the power of your spirit and the preaching of your gospel? Would you do all of this for our good and for your glory, we pray. Amen. How many of you have ever been told Christ ascended for you? Hopefully you've been told or uh, maybe uh, uh, hopefully you have told neighbors, family, friends that Jesus died for you, that Jesus rose for you. But I'm curious how many of you have been told with excitement and good news, Jesus ascended for you. Now, the ascension of Christ is not often talked about as much as the crucifixion and the resurrection. And as the church, as we rightly turn our attention as Holy Week approaches to what Jesus has done in his death, in his resurrection, this morning I want to look At what does it mean for us on this Monday after Easter? What does that work of his death and resurrection say to our present life? What does it mean for us that that Christ ascended for you? If you grew up in the church, um, maybe you are familiar with uh, this uh, creed that is often recited by Christians in all times and places called the Apostles' Creed, And the Apostles' Creed puts it like this. It's basically a summary of the story of Scripture, God's story of creation, redemption, and restoration of all things. And the early church, in in putting together this creed, thought it was important to include this maybe familiar line, confessing, I believe he ascended to heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And from there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. And so this morning, from this passage and several other passages that we'll, that we'll read in a moment, we're looking at this question, why did Christ ascend? Christ ascended for, for what? What was the purpose? And we're going to see some beautiful truths. We're going to see some challenging truths about this reality, that he is there at the right hand of the, at the Father, and he promises that he will come again to judge the living and the dead. And we're going to see these, these truths uh, in three main points. We're going to see, first, the place of Jesus. We're going to see the power of Jesus. And finally, our purpose from Jesus. Those are our three points for this morning. The place of Jesus, the power of Jesus, and our purpose from Jesus. We're looking at the beginning of Acts and uh, you might know that Acts is a continuation of the Gospel of Luke. The author Luke was a physician and he was a researcher of researchers. He did his due diligence and he set out to make an orderly account of all that Jesus did and accomplished in his life and death and resurrection. And as Acts picks up that story, it begins with the reality of the ascension and he is telling his disciples right before the ascension that they are to go, that they are to take the gospel to Jerusalem throughout Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And the the book of Acts is set up, this this going out with this mission is set up from this question in verse 5 that the the disciples ask, or excuse me, verse 6. "'Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel?' And basically, what the disciples are asking now that you're back, Jesus, is, is now the time? Are, are, are you going to set everything right? Are you going to put um, our oppressors and our enemies underneath your, your feet? Are you going to restore the kingdom? And Jesus' answer, he doesn't deny that that is going to happen. But what does he say? It's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. And then, mysteriously, After he says that, he ascends. He ascends into heaven, and those are his last words to his disciples. So now, why did Jesus then have to ascend to the Father, to the right hand? And a couple of beautiful reasons that I want to look at this morning um, for the reason of the ascension of Christ. And we'll look at this under our first point, the place of Jesus, where he is right now. First of all, When Jesus ascends, one pastor put it this way, it is like a homecoming, a cosmic attaboy from God the Father to Jesus the Son on his finished, completed work. He has accomplished what he was sent by the Father to do, and it is like his homecoming party. It is like the Father saying, well done, good and faithful servant. You are home. Enter into your Father's delight But he doesn't ascend only for himself, but he also ascends for you, for me, to secure benefits right now in the present that you can rely on. And so let's look at a couple of these benefits. He is there in that place at the right hand of the Father for our benefit. And the first benefit I want to look at is that he is there as our advocate. This is the way that scripture uh, talks about it. In Romans 8, it says, who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. 1 John puts it this way, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, And so what we see here as our advocate, as our defender, he is interceding for us. So in those moments when your sin, when your failures, when when you are told that you are not worthy to carry the name Christian, we have an advocate. We have one who is at the right hand of the Father, who is interceding for us. When the accuser himself whispers lies to you that you are too shameful, you are too dreadful, you are too unworthy to come to the Father, the ascension of Christ invites us to lift our eyes to the benefit we have, that we have an advocate, a defender at the Father's side, interceding for us. And what's beautiful about this is that he is not interceding on behalf of your righteousness, what you've done, but he's interceding on our behalf according to his righteousness what he's done. It's not as if he's at the right side of the Father saying, hey, he really didn't mean it. He's promised to do better. I know she messed up again, but just trust me, she'll, she'll, she'll get it together. No, what is he doing? He is interceding and pleading at the right hand of the Father, advocating for you and for me, not according to our righteousness, the ways in which we have fallen short, but according to his. That's what John just said in First. John. He is there on the merit of his works, not our own. And that's the first major benefit that we have because it has never been, it was not, it is not, and it will never be up to us to have our position before God secured by our own works. Jesus, as our advocate at the right hand of the Father, has secured that benefit for us. It is ours in Christ. That's the first benefit. But second, what we see is that as our advocate, as the one who has ascended into the presence of God, we can look and be confident that our own flesh, our humanity, is in heaven. Jesus is in heaven. In regards to his human nature, he is in the presence of God with God. He is no longer present on earth in his human nature. Now, he is still true to his promise, never to leave us or forsake us by his divine nature, but it is a great comfort that his human nature is in heaven, that he is with the Father. He has not left us or forsaken us, but he has gone to the Father to give us the benefit of knowing that our humanity is in heaven, to prepare a place for us. John 14 puts it this way, In my Father's house are many rooms, If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. In his prayer the night before he was crucified, he prayed this to the Father. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 2, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and listen, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus The author of Hebrews says, Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. He goes on to say, The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. What's the takeaway? From, from all those passages, our own flesh, our humanity is in heaven. It is a promise and a pledge from him, as we just heard from these passages, that because Jesus, our head, is in heaven, he will take us, his body, to be with him. He will take us home, There's great confidence in this that we are not left alone in this fallen and broken world, that this fallen and broken world is not our true home, but Christ, our head, has actually gone before us to secure our home for us and promises to bring us with him. It's a place for you. He says in the Gospel of John that he has us in mind as he goes to prepare this place. That's good news. I don't know if y'all do this or if this is just an indicator of my age and stage, um, but I don't waste time on uh, my phone with Instagram or Be Real or any of the apps that a lot of my students at college campuses do, Um, but I do waste time on Zillow. (laughs) And... What I do on Zillow is sometimes I'll just get daydreaming of what it would be like to live in an amazing mountain town, uh, and I'll look at these homes that have a back porch that is facing west into some mountainous area, uh, ideally snow-capped, facing west to see the sunset with Adirondack chairs. Um, I don't know if you're mountain people, but picture your dream home um, in that illustration. And sometimes what I'll see in these ads is that the house is pending. And I'll be like, bummer, I missed my chance of this $4 million <laughs> property. Um, but in curiosity, I'll want to go and see, like, who's, who's buying this? And so imagine you go and you, you, you look up who is buying this dream home for you. And when, when you find out the name, what you read there is your name. Your name is the pending owner of this home. Signed for by Jesus. It is guaranteed. It is yours. And should you ever doubt and think and have thoughts, oh, I could never deserve. I could never afford. I could never have a place like this. You get in the mail, the deed to the house as a guarantee of the down payment that has been purchased that home in your name. That's what Jesus is saying here is that he has prepared a place for you. He has sent the Holy Spirit as a down payment, as a seal, as a guarantee that where he is, he will bring you also. And so when we have those moments where our sin or maybe even the, the uh, accuser, our enemy, tells us, you are not worthy. You are forsaken. You do not have a home with God. You cannot draw near to him. We have the spirit that he has poured out, that he's given, that invites us to lift our eyes, to see our Savior, our advocate, our defender in the presence of God, knowing that we have a place in heaven too, because he has promised to bring us there. He's prepared that place. He has you in mind as he has prepared it. It is for you. That's one of the amazing benefits of Christ ascending, being in heaven For us. So that's the first thing I want us to see about the the place of Jesus. But secondly, I want us also to to consider the power of Jesus from his ascension. It says that uh, in Scripture, he sits at the right hand of God. And so when he ascended and sits at the right hand, promising to bring judgment to the living and the dead, what does that mean? Well, basically, it is indicating a posture of completion of his work and a posture of authority from that place. First, as an indicator of a posture of completion, the author of Hebrews Hebrew says, day after day, speaking about priests, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again, and he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, that is Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins he sat down at the right hand of god and since that time he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool because by one sacrifice he is made perfect forever those who are being made holy You see, the priests of the Old Testament were many in number, and they were always working, always on their feet. And as soon as one got off the clock, another one would clock in and be offering sacrifices day in, day out, week in, week out, year in, year out. But with Jesus, the work of the sacrifice is done. It is complete. And so in addition to him sitting in this posture of completion, sitting down, the the sacrifice that was necessary for us to enter into the presence of God That being complete, it also is an indication or a posture of authority. He's at the right hand of power, ruling all things with the Father. He is in the place of power until the time when his disciples were asking about in verse 5. And he will return, and he will make his enemies his footstool and restore the kingdom of God. And it's from that posture of authority he is going to come and judge. And we see that in verse 11, this idea that he will come Again, that he will come to judge the living and the dead. Statistically, I know that this is an unpopular topic to consider. But just as scripture holds out and holds forth God as praiseworthy for being savior, just as scripture holds out um, God as being praise, praiseworthy for being king and lord, scripture also holds out God as praiseworthy for being a judge for for one who is going to judge. And so the question for you this morning is do you believe that? Do you believe that it is good news, that it is praiseworthy that God is judge? Scripture would say that it is. The idea of God's judgment is actually good news. And many of us are very uncomfortable with that idea. Um, we're uncomfortable with the topic of a God who judges, but we get even more uncomfortable with the idea of a God who might judge us. But that's what Scripture holds out, that Christian and unchristian alike all will stand before God and be judged. And this is a reality to be praised. Why is that? Well, on the whole, most people, most people, if you were to ask uh, in America. They believe in some, some form of final judgment. Um, it, there was an article several years ago in the Atlantic that, that cited a Barna Research Group study, and it said that showing that while 71% of Americans believe people will go to hell, just 0.005%, that is five one thousandths of a percent, think that they themselves are in real danger of going there. To give that context, if that were true in my context as campus minister at UCF, um, last I checked, it's actually around 70,000 students, so it is a massive school. Um, So the place that I do ministry at, roughly 70,000 students, if that stat was true, this means that only 3.5 students out of that 70,000 believe that they are in any real danger of going to hell, of being on the wrong side of God's judgment. 3.5 out of 70,000 believe that they are in any real danger of suffering in hell. But compare that. Compare that to what Jesus says about the judgment. The gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. And so while verses like this might make us uncomfortable, and that study shows how uncomfortable it makes us, that so few of us believe that we are actually in danger of going to hell, Scripture consistently holds out this God who promises to judge as something to be praised, as a reality that is good news. Why is that? Well, first, it's good news for those of us who have been sinned against. For those of us who have been sinned against, God's judgment is good news. Believing that God is a judge that he will set all things right, it frees you. It frees you and me to give over our anger, our vengeance, our grudges, to surrender that desire for revenge. If you know that God's judgment is righteous, that it's perfect, that it's true, it enables you to lay those things down and trust that he will set all things right. And if you don't believe that, if you don't believe that God will set all things right, if you don't believe that there is going to be a judgment nothing is stopping us. Nothing is stopping you from taking justice and revenge into your own hands. Some of you might be familiar with um, the moving story by John Grisham called A Time to Kill. It's about a black father uh, in Mississippi uh, whose black nine-year-old little girl is kidnapped, beaten, taken advantage of, and left for dead by two white men. Carly Haley, the father he knows that these men will be tried by not a jury of his peers, but a jury of their peers. And knowing that, he knows that they will not receive justice, that they will be set free. And so knowing this reality, he takes justice into his own hands. And he decides that he's going to murder these men. And so he does just that and murders them on the courthouse steps. And the motive is clear. The motive in the story is clear. With the prospect of there being no justice, what prevents us from taking vengeance into our own hands? Miroslav Volf is a philosopher um, and a Yale professor. Um, He explained it this way. He said the practice of nonviolence, the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. He goes on to say, My thesis will be unpopular with many in the West, but imagine speaking to people as I have, whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been taken advantage of, whose father and brothers have had their throats slit. Your point to them, we should not retaliate? Why not? I say as an object of ridicule. The only means of prohibiting violence by us is to insist that violence is only legitimate when it comes from God. Violence thrives today, secretly nourished by the belief that God refuses to take the sword. It takes the quiet of a suburb for the birth of this this thesis that human nonviolence is a result of God who refuses to judge. In a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, the idea will invariably die like other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. That was a long quote, but in other words, what he's saying is if you believe that God is just a God of love and not judgment, what, what he is saying is that is some suburban cul de sac, gated community, penthouse theology. It is so far removed from the injustices and the terrors of this world that only that belief can thrive in a posture of privilege and protection and distance from the the realities of evil and suffering in this world. But if what the Bible claims is true, that God will judge, then this is good news. It is good news for those who have been sinned against. And if you're honest with yourself, for just a moment. I think, I think most of us know this. We know this down in our bones. Um, it's why you and I cheer at the end of movies uh, when the cause for good is looking bleak and seemingly outmatched by evil and all the schemes of the enemies. And at the last minute, the good guys come through. What do we do? We cheer, we, we breathe a sigh of relief, we cry, we rejoice whether it's in Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows when, when Harry is killed by Voldemort and he brings all his followers, the Death Eaters, triumphantly into Hogwarts and, and asks all the rebels of his evil cause to swear allegiance now or forever be an enemy. But at the last moment, Harry comes back and he fights um, and, and turns the tide and they end up winning. When I saw that in theaters, The theater actually burst out into um, cheers when Molly Weasley killed Bellatrix Lestrange, one of the most evil characters in the books. Why? Because you know it in your bones that you want good to triumph over evil. You want evil to have to answer to the judgment. And so whether it's Harry Potter, whether it's um, Lord of the Rings in in Helm's Deep, when Aragorn and the Riders of Rohan, they are backed up into the fortress, and this terrible ugly army of orcs and Uroquay, these goblin men, and are in massive number pushing them back, breaking forth the walls. And Aragorn and his riders are backing up more and more into the fortress. They can hear their women and children that they're trying to protect. And in one last effort, they ride out trying to conquer the enemy, knowing that they likely will be defeated. But at that moment, they look up to the left and what do they see? Gandalf, the white, the white rider coming to judge. And as he rides down with his army, he tramples over all of this ugly, uh, just deformed evil and triumphs. And what do we do? We cheer. We rejoice. We long for that. Why? Y'all, if you're here this morning and you aren't sure about Christianity, if you're not convinced, but your heart cheers in those moments... in in literature, when evil is defeated, um, there is at least a part of your heart that longs for what Christian scriptures have believed and held out and made abundantly clear, that there is one who will come to defeat all evil, that that is our hope. Revelation puts it this way, then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. This is good news for those who have been sinned against, for those who have experienced evil for those who have experienced injustice, abuse, that there is one to come that will put all things right. But it's also good news, not only for those sinned against, but it's good news for sinners as well. And why is that? I love the way the Heidelberg Catechism puts this. It asks in question form, what comfort is it to you that Christ will come to judge the living and the dead? Answer? Answer. In all my sorrow and persecution, I lift up my head and eagerly await as judge from heaven the very same person who before has submitted himself to the judgment of God for my sake and has removed all the curse from me. In other words, the white rider, the one to come who will ride over all evil and all injustice is the same exact person who came as a lowly, humble, gentle carpenter who gives the invitation, come to me and rest. Come to me weary. Why can he give that invitation? Because he submitted himself to God's judgment on your behalf and therefore, there is therefore now no condemnation for you. If you are in Christ, if if he is in your place taking on the judgment of God, there is therefore now no condemnation for you. That is yours. So it is good news, not only for those sinned against, but for sinners, because the very same person who before has submitted himself to the judgment of God for my sake. And so if you're not convinced Of Christianity this morning, if you're here, um, I think also there's an opportunity for this to be really good news for you this morning. And why do I believe that? Well, I believe what Scripture says. And Scripture says this How will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him who they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Well, I'm here this morning preaching to you. I am here, and you are hearing the gospel. You are hearing the good news. And maybe you find yourself wanting to believe this for the very first time. And I believe what Scripture says is true, that you have an opportunity to call upon one whom Scripture says bestows. He bestows his riches on all who call on him. And for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That is good news for you this morning. And if that's you, if you're if you're wanting to believe this for the first time, I'd invite you come talk to me after the service. Come talk to Ben. Come talk to some of the leaders here at New City. Ask us, what does it mean to believe? Ask your, um, your leaders in this church story of what does it mean to follow this one who ascended for you and promises to come and judge. Or better yet, if You don't come and ask me or come and ask Ben. Ask your your friend, your neighbor, um, who you might have come with this morning. Ask them, and you'll give them an opportunity to fulfill our third and final point, and by far the shortest. Our third point is our purpose from Jesus. Verse 8 puts it uh, out there that they are to go, these disciples, to share the good news in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. There's a call here to be a witness in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This is Jesus' way of saying there is no person, there is no place, not in need of an audience for my grace, for my good news. Everyone needs to hear this. There's not any person or place that is too far off, that's too evil, that is too liberal, that is too conservative, that is too immoral, too whatever for this good news. Everyone needs an audience for this grace. And we see this in how he builds out this mission, or this purpose. He calls them to be a witness in Jerusalem where they are and to all of Judea and to the surrounding area and not to forget Samaria as they go to the ends of the earth. You might be familiar with the story of Jesus and the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. And for Jesus's Jewish disciples, the best way I can describe the grandeur of this good news, the grace uh, and his call that that. Everyone needs an audience to this good news. By Jesus calling them to go to Samaria, it's akin in Harry Potter if, and this is a stretch, but imagine if all the the death eaters get converted. Um, All of uh, the evil ones in the story get converted, and and he tells them, you now go to the mudbloods. The mudbloods in Harry Potter are um, the children of muggles and magic folk, this intermarriage um, that the the Death Eaters think is um, just a, a shame to the magic community. And in effect, Jesus is saying, go to those people, the most unlikely. For the Samaritans, they had intermarried with Jewish oppressors. So, racially, they were um, enemies of the Jewish people. And what Jesus is saying is even though they are looked down upon by the Jews, go to them. You're witnessing to the the end of the earth. You need to go to the unwanted, to the unlikely, to the stubborn, to the traitors. That is the call. He's also saying, though, in calling them to go to the Samaritans, not only to go to the people that um, you um, have maybe racial tensions with, but also who think differently than you. The Samaritans uh, were heretics, to put it bluntly. They didn't uh, believe in a lot of things, but one of the things they held was the first five books of the Bible were, were the only books that were Scripture, and the rest of the Jewish Scriptures were not. And so what Jesus is saying is go to those who think differently than you. Share the good news with those who don't agree with you. Go to them. Give them an audience for my grace. There's not one person that you know that is not in need of this audience for his grace. And so in conclusion, what we see from this purpose of Jesus as he ascends to the right hand of the Father and as he goes to secure all the benefits that we just talked about, that we have an advocate In light of our sin and that is ongoing, we have an advocate there pleading on behalf of his righteousness, not our own, that we have a pledge, a sure promise that our home is in heaven, that he has secured it there for us because he is there, our head, and he will bring us his body to himself. The fact that he has sent his spirit, that when we are in doubts, our spirit lifts our head to our true home to seek the things that are above where Christ is. We have that spirit dwelling in us. And from this position of power, he promises that no enemy in your life will ever actually be able to conquer you because he promises to conquer all his and our enemies. From that position of power, he gives us this purpose. And he invites us to participate. Participate in the sharing and the advancement of his kingdom. And so the invitation this morning is that we would do just that, that we would invite our friends, that we would invite our family, that we would invite our neighbors, those that God has called into our lives, so that when he comes or he brings us to himself, we won't come alone, but we will come with those that we love. This is invitation. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so grateful that you are a father who speaks to us And by the power of your Spirit, you enable us to respond in faithfulness. Would you do that in our hearts now? That we would respond in faithfulness to praise you for the benefits that you've secured for us. uh, That we would respond in faithfulness and praise for uh, the ways in which you have secured a home for us. Will we also respond in faithfulness, Father, um, to the call from your Son, Jesus, to go to all those who need an audience of your grace? Would you do that in our hearts and more, we pray in his powerful name. Amen.